We are returning to our study in 1 Samuel today on chapter 22. So as you look for it, I just, it, um, I get sometimes really um, surprised with the Lord's sovereignty and I shouldn't on how he orchestrates things. So today's theme, trusting God, is in direct opposition <laughs> to what we're going to see today, uh, suspicious uh, evil suspicious, suspicions. So as you turn your Bible there, we know of many people in history that had a suspicious um, attitude in all that they did. Stalin, um, and from Russia, it's, he's known as the great terror. Stalin promotes an image of himself as a great benevolent leader and hero of the Soviet Union. And yet he is increasingly paranoid and purges the Communist Party and army of anyone who might oppose him. Now, 93 of 139 Central Committee members are killed as soon as he comes to power. 81 of the 103 generals and admirals are executed. The secret police is strictly enforced in Stalinism, and people are encouraged to inform one another. Three million people are accused of opposing communism and sent to the Gulag, a system of labor camps in Syria and Siberia. Around 750,000 people are summarily killed. Stalin's uh, system wasn't just affecting the, his government and the people that were under him, but also his family. Um, in 1919, Stalin marries his second wife, Nadezda, Nadezda um, and he ha they have two children. Is and Vasily. I mean, I. Where is uh, my Russian friends here to help me with <laughs> the names? He abuses his wife, and she eventually kills herself in 1932. He makes sure her death is officially reported as being caused by appendicitis. Yakov, his son from his first wife, is a soldier in the Red Army and is captured early on World War II. When the Germans propose to free him in a prison swap, Stalin refuses, and he believes his son has uh, surrendered voluntarily. Yakov dies in a Nazi concentration camp in 1943. And in Stalin's last years, he becomes increasingly suspicious and continues to conduct purges against his enemies within the party. Stalin is a sad example of evil suspicious suspicions, and we will uh, see a lot of that in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel today with Saul, who is increasing in his suspicions and acting on them in a destructive way. So turn your Bibles to chapter 22, and we're going to pick up on verse 6. Uh, it would be good for us to stand up and read it together. Right. Uh, starting in verse 6, thus says the word of God. 
Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. And Doag the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Hytub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, and the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's household. And the priests were in who were in Ab, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law who is the captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father of your servants. Know nothing at all of this whole affair." But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, and you and all your father's household. And the king said to, this guard, to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put, to, to put forth their hands on the attack to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn, turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed on that day 85 men who were the linen and ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled to David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Now stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me.
can see. You know. um, gracious Father, we come before you with um, these sobering words. As we are warned in 1 Corinthians 10 to heed to these examples in the past so that we might not incur in the same errors and the same mistakes. Lord, and I know there are um, really extreme examples, destructive examples, but you can, we can become just as dangerous if we let our hearts to go awry. And I do pray, Father, that as we look to your word for guidance and instruction, you would help us to convict us, to comfort us with your word and transform the way we perceive things. This is our desire, in Jesus' name, amen. Power corrupts. It, it generates jealousy and fear and produces a paranoia that casts allies in the role of enemies. In this next episode, the focus briefly shifts from David to Saul, and we see the tragic aftermath of, the, of David's visit to Ahimelech. You remember in chapter 21 um, that uh, David came and sought help, and he needed to eat, and he asked for bread, and Ahimelech, the priest, um, helped him in that occasion. Now, Ahimelech didn't know anything about David being a fugitive. Saul accuses the priest of being traitors and murders, and murders them and their families. Only one, Abiathar, escapes. He goes to David, who welcomes him and promises to protect him. The contrast between Saul and David cannot be sharper. While Saul is murdering the priests of the Lord, David is seeking their protection. Saul's hostility has reached new depths. This heightens the tension of the story. For if Saul kills the Lord's priests, then no one is safe. Certainly not David. This paves the way then for the episodes to follow in which Saul relentlessly pursued David. So today as we look at our passage, um, and I give you the outline there with uh, some of the cross-references that you can uh, follow along, uh, we'll see three aspects of these evil suspicions. Three aspects of these evil suspicions. So we can heed the warning of 1 Corinthians 10 that we might be, look at Saul's example and be warned uh, to not fall in the same mistakes. Our first point is evil suspicions feed on conspiracy. Evil suspicions feed in conspiracy. And that's verses 6 through 9. We read here that Saul is conducting a royal pity party under the tamarisk tree in Gibeah. He addresses his inner circle of Benjamite henchmen, asking them if they think of the son of Jesse. He doesn't call David by his name. So he thinks the son of Jesse will pass out government jobs and perks to them as he, Saul, has done. He's speaking to his select circle. For the three times he refers to all of you, verse 7 and 8, Hear, O Benjamites, and he says, make all of you commandment, uh, commandments of, uh, commanders of thousands and commanders of vineyards. And they have, he, alert, he alleges, all centered the conspiracy of silence. 
They have conspired against Saul, that's according to his own belief, um, callously withholding from him intelligence about his own son's subversive support of the son of Jesse, again, in verse 8. Um, we see also he has his spear in his hand in verse 6 there we read this seemingly incidental detail is ominous it's just a hint to show what will happen with that when he had that spear on his hand before he attempted to kill David twice and then his own son later Um, he talks to the Benjamites. Saul appeals to his officials on the, base, on the basis of tri tribal allegiance. By focusing on his tribal identity, I want to remind you that David, uh, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul is threatening Israel's unity. Remember that Israel is composed of 12 tribes, and each one has their, it was like their own states, um, their own leadership, and yet they have one central government. Um, Saul is really threatening the division in the country. As the Benjamites of Gibeah have done once before, they have um, caused trouble. If you're reading Judges, the Benjamites have caused great trouble for the whole nation. This foreshadows tribe tensions that will come soon in our story. In 2 uh, Samuel, when David finally gets to the throne, there is this rivalry between the Benjamites the ones from the tribe of Benjamin, and the rest of the country because they wanted to remain uh, loyal to Saul. And what is this whole thing about fields and vineyards? Saul is reminding them that they have an economic advantage with a fellow Benjamite on the throne. You know, if I am in the throne, you guys get the perks because we're the same, we're kin. Saul's, Saul, Saul's language shows that he's now viewing himself and operating as the typical oppressive king that Samuel warned them about. How about we turn to Samuel chapter 8, 12, when um, prophet Samuel warned the people of Israel about a king that would do just that. Um, chapter 8, verse 12. It says, um, Samuel's warning, he says, he will appoint, speaking of the king, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipments for his chariots. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and of your vineyards and of your olive groves and give them to his servants. That's exactly what um, Saul is doing here. It is obvious that Saul, though is still officially the king of Israel, has departed from the kingship ideal of the Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy law in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Remember that we read um, at some point here, Deuteronomy 17 said that kings should not accumulate for themselves chariots and armies and, and uh, riches and now Saul is doing exactly that. It is no different than the other kings of the other nations. In verse 8, we see that Saul's suspicion is getting to an extreme. He's thinking, they conspired against me. Verse 8 here, we read, um, will you make your... Uh, 
For all of you have conspired against me, so there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. There is uh, a certain, certainly no indication that Jonathan had caused David to rise up against Saul, but that's what he's believing. To conspire, the word there, to conspire or to plot, as some translations use it, is to engage in plotting or to enter into a conspiracy, to swear together. So Saul appears to have learned more details um, about the events described in chapter 19, about uh, David and Jonathan's uh, alliance, and he's referring to the loyalty pact between the jo Jonathan and David in chapter 18 and then uh, reaffirmed in chapter 20. He says that nobody is sorry for me. Nobody feels sorry for me for what's going on. This expression to be regretful, sorrowful, or feel a sense of loss over something done or undone. That is self-pity at its best. I want people to feel sorry for me. I want them to look at my situation. I want them to feel bad for me. In his rage, Saul's distorted thinking took a particular turn as he accused his own son of being the instigator of this anti-Saul conspiracy. As Saul's now envisioned it, David was not actually Saul's primary enemy. He was merely a pawn in a regicidal scheme hatched by Jonathan. Apparently, Saul considered it plausible that Jonathan had hired David as a hitman in a plan to become king in his father's stead. Such distorted thinking may help to explain why Saul attempted to murder Jonathan only days before. We just read that in chapter 20. Saul not only was distorted in his perception of Jonathan's actions, but he misunderstood David's as well. He thought that David was... At that moment, lying in wait, we read there on, um, at the end of verse 8, seeking to kill him at his first opportunity. Now, we, I want to reflect this in a little bit. We see here three characteristics in this, in this uh, evil suspicions. And I appreciate um, a little booklet by um, Pastor Lou Priolo on, in these evil suspicions, and he makes a, a contrast with Saul's story. Um, evil suspicions expresses the idea of secretly thinking or conjecturing wicked or malicious things about others or believing the worst about others. Saul is a classical example of that. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4. We've been studying in 1 Timothy that some false teachers were threatening the doctrinal purity of that church, the church of Ephesus. And Paul is writing to warn them about these false teachers, and as he describes them, you will see their key word that, as he refers to them. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 4, he says... Um, the, the false teachers, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes and about words 
out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. That's the, the key word that I wanted to bring. People that are thinking too much about themselves, they will have these suspicious attitude to everything that happens around them. It really stems from pride. Uh, that, that's what it comes from, boils down to. Um, as even Jake mentioned earlier from the passage in Proverbs, do not lean in on understanding. When we lean in on understanding, we um, go uh, really illogical, like Saul is doing here. Another characteristic of these evil suspicion is judging or imputing, imputing mo evil motives to others. Suspicious people are especially prone to imputing to those they distrust all manner of sinful thoughts and motives. Only can judge the motives, only God can judge the motives of another. Um, if you turn to Luke 16, 15, Jesus is rebuking um, the Pharisees, and he condemns them for this attitude of judging and putting and putting evil motives on other people. Luke 16, verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of man, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in God's sight. Only God really knows what happens in people's hearts and motives. We can't know that. And the last, the last example here of a, a last characteristic, really, of these evil suspicions is pride. Thinking I am either more important than others or I'm really special. Paranoid or suspicious people tend to believe that they are extraordinary. There is something about them that sets them apart from most everyone else. Well, this might be okay for other people, but you can't do this with me. I'm special. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. They believe that they're so special that they become targets of certain individuals. They have a false reasoning that doesn't confirm to reality, and they tend to exaggerate the threat of actual danger. That's what Saul is doing here. He's exaggerating and blowing things out of proportion from his own reasoning, his own understanding. Verse 9, coming back to our text in 1 Samuel 22. The interesting part of this story is that paranoid people, and I want, I want you to notice this, paranoid people always find an accomplice for their theories. They always find people that will be a support to their own thinking. And here we have Doeg, the Edomite, and he knows when to talk. He is a supervisor of the herdsmen, and he discloses, in contrast to the silent of the Benjamites, the other people from Benjamin, they don't talk, the, he discloses to the king what he saw while de detained in, at Nob, the city of Nob. Now we understand verse 21-7. So let's turn 21-7 here. Uh, last time that I preached from 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel 21, 
um, where I talked about David seeking help uh, with Ahimelech. And we read verse 7, it's like, this is kind of out of place. Why, why he had to mention? Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Now we know why he mentioned it there, because Doeg is going to come back to uh, bite. Like Saul, Doeg avoids the name David. He knows exactly how to talk in a way that is pleasing to Saul. He doesn't refer to David as David. He refers to him as son of Jesse. That's how Saul was calling him, right? Doeg is a master manipulator and mimics Saul's derogatory description of David and consequently makes it clear that he has allied himself with the king's perspective and his own agenda. King, I agree with you. This despicable person that I cannot even mention his name, he is evil. The son of Jesse came to Nob, Doeg stresses, and Ahimelech asked direction for him from the Lord and also fed and armed him with Goliath's sword. Remember, king, Goliath's sword? The guy that he killed? Well, he has the sword now. Verse 10 and then he adds a spin on the whole thing. We read that he used a phrase, a phrase there, inquired of the Lord. But as we read in 21, there is no reference to Ahimelech's consulting the Lord for David. Thus, Doeg might be lying here. But he's accusing Ahimelech of helping David with the Lord by inquiring, presumably, how he could achieve his aim of destroying Saul. Not only does Doeg claim that Ahimelech inquired of, David, of God's will for David, but he calls the holy bread provisions, and he refers to the sword of Goliath. Each statement trying to build up on the military threat that David is trying to bring about. And that increases our tension in provoking the suspicion that the priest was aiding David in military preparations against who else but Saul? Now let me, um, as I look to this, when those who are once served God turn to rebel, turn and rebel against him, they become his enemies. This is what Saul is doing here. He served God and he fought God's battle, but now he's turning. I want to illustrate this with um, someone that probably most of you have heard of a philosopher, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. And most people heard who Nietzsche was, but very few people know that Nietzsche was one of the most influential philosophers in modern history and is often uh, referred to as the greatest German philosopher since Kant and Hegel. What I was going to say is that very few people know that he was born into a family of Lutheran pastors. He was called the little minister as a kid, and people thought that he would become a pastor himself. His faith was too strong, faith, when he was 19, but then when he abandoned that faith as a student in the University of Boone, about the same time he also contracted syphilis, which would eventually lead to the dementia of which he died of. Nietzsche developed great hostility toward Christianity and proceeded to attack it with great vitriol. 
Seeing Jesus as weak, he envisioned a race of supermen who would renounce any kind of compassion and gentleness, an ideology that later appealed to the Nazis and the followers of Mussolini. Some of his most well-known works are The, B the Birth of Tragedy and Thus Spake Zarathustra. <laughs> and he once wrote, and here I quote, I condemn Christianity. I raise against the Christian church the most horrible of all accusations ever uttered. It is to me the highest of all conceivable corruptions a man of spiritual death needs friends. Uh, a man of spiritual depth needs friends, unless he still has God as a friend. But I have neither God nor friends. What a sad way to live, and a, what a sad way to die. Interesting claim for someone who becomes so entangled, became so entangled in his own unbelief and opposition to God and isolated himself because of his evil suspicions and skepticism. Dr. Lupriolo again illustrates some of these suspicions to us. Um, some, I'm going to give you a few examples here or that sometimes we think. We think, well, Saul is true and extreme example. I'm not paranoid about people trying to kill me. But we do have some paranoia, don't we? Here are a few of them. I wonder how this person is gonna is gonna hurt me. Well, I better not let them get too close to me. I need to set some boundaries. I don't want to be threatened. I've got to keep him from finding out about my problems and or uh, trying to keep her she from finding out my problems. And then she will use this against me someday. Or even, I wonder what that person meant by that. That was a hint of sarcasm in, the, in their voice and a contemptuous look in their face while they were speaking. And he starts reading between the lines what was not said. Suspicious people like Saul put the worst interpretations on ambiguous events. They make harsh judgments about ordinary interactions that they have with one another. They interpret neutral statements with non-threatening people as hostile ones. A harsh, a rash judgment is jumping to hasty, is um, jumping to hasty and unfounded negative conclusions about something without having sufficient biblical cause. Judging rashly often involves making judgments about someone according to appearance rather than according to biblical conclusions. I think Jesus illustrates this well in John chapter 7. I didn't place there in your notes, but if you can turn there, John 7. Saul is judging basically, uh, based on appearance, on what he perceived as a threat. Jesus warned uh, religious leaders about that. In chapter, 20, uh, chapter 7, John chapter 7 and verse 21, um, the Lord has operated miracles, have healed people, provided for them. 
and yet they are distrusting of him. He says in verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from, your, from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? So Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, and they're judging him and his motives. Do not judge according to appearance, but, ju but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus wants you not to make superficial judgments. He wants you to get below the surface and apply scripture, scriptures correctly to each situation. If you're not able to see below the surface, you probably ought to suspend your judgment until you can. Perhaps it's not your place to make this judgment at all. In contrast, one's suspicions ramps up to a destructive point, and that is exactly what's going to happen here with Saul. A second um, aspect of these evil suspicions is that they are destructive. They are destructive. Verses 11 through 19 in 1 Samuel. We read this. Reality seems now as big as Saul's suspicions. Saul summons Ahimelech and all of his father's house, and all of them come to the king. Verse 11. He sends and brings Ahimelech and his priestly family members to Gibeah. Remember, he, was, he lives in Nob, and it was a priestly uh, town. And he calls all of them to Gibeah, the capital of his kingdom. And I want you to note that the antecedent here is who were in Nob in all of his father's house instead of priests. So it was not just the priests that came, but all of his household, women and children and everyone came. The distance between Nob and Gibeah is not great, maybe less, of, less than a few miles. They came to Gibeah with a clear conscience. All of them came at once. Verse 12 and 13, Saul asked why Ahimelech, David, uh, Ahimelech and David conspired against him. He again uses the word conspiracy. Um, beginning of verse 11 here. Um, he says, listen now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. Then Saul said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Here's the word conspiracy again. Um, in his paranoia, the deluded king sees conspiracy everywhere. Saul applies his conspiracy theory to the aid of Ahimelech and gave to the son of, Ahi, uh, the son of Jesse. Verse 14 and 15, Ahimelech's reply shows his complete innocence. He had helped David as he trusted, as a trusted servant of the king, is just carrying out a mission of the king. He just trusted in his words. Um, interesting, a scholar who has studied this passage as a judicial account, as something, a legal text, points out that Ahimelech's answer is both a statement denying the heart of Saul's case. That is, his actions were part of a conspiracy. Part of the narrator's overall care to present David as, a bl as blameless towards Saul. 
I mean, you are accusing him of all of those things, but Ahimelech's argument is he's just the opposite of what you're accusing him. Ahimelech musters, uh, musters what appears to be a capable defense given the circumstances. Ahimelech raises questions. Doesn't David have a high rank and fine reputation at the court? Isn't he the king's son-in-law? He's your family. Was my seeking Lord's direction for him some new twist on this whole story? Have I not done this with some regularity when he went to the battles and I consulted God for him? And then he uses the word who or like, who can be like him? David is here considered a, to be incomparable with any other, of serv, any other servants of Saul. Ahimelech refers to David by his name in contrast with Saul and Doag who uses the word son of Jesse. When there are, um, where there are you getting all of this conspiracy thinking? Ahimelech may have had some misgivings, but he had apparently no clear knowledge of what was going on. Saul heard, heard enough in the, sword, the edge of the sword for the priests of Yahweh. That was his command in verse 16 to 18. Um, that really reminds me of Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1. It says that the wicked flee when there is no one pursuing. He flees when there is no one pursuing. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. Not because they are brave, but because they trust the Lord. But the wicked man is always distrusting, always in suspicions, even when they're not plausible evidence for those suspicions. Verse 16, despite Ahimelech's declaration of his innocence, Saul sentences him to death. This judgment is unjust because Saul has not proved his case against Ahimelech. To do so, he would have to first prove David's criminality. Saul no longer has any legal claim to the throne. How could a, an unjust judge be king over a whole nation? Verse 17 then Saul commands his uh, runners or guards, uh, that our translation translates as guards, but really it's runners there in the original, to kill the priests of the Lord. They were kind of like the palace bodyguards for Saul. And the first verb here that he, turned, uh, he uses for them is turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. It is a key term in this chapter, and it reappears again in verse 18. I've always skipped there uh, to verse 18. Then king said to the, the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. They probably refused both because of the unjustness of the sentence given by the king, whose duty under God was to uphold justice and the sacredness of the, and the priests of the Lord. Here the servants of the king placed their fear of the Lord above their fear of the king. Verse 18, nobody except Doeg obeys the king and murders the priests. It may be that Doeg, as a foreigner, or presumably a non-Yahweh, a person that didn't worship the Lord, has no religious scruple to prevent him from slaying the priests of Nob. But then, why the, the question comes, and from verse 21, why was he detained before the Lord? Why does the author describe him as being detained before the Lord? 
It is possible that Doeg's religiosity was only liturgical or formal and that he had neither respect for the priests nor fear of God. The number of priests, 85, is noteworthy. Only Eli's family and Samuel are mentioned in the accounts of Shiloh, and we even read that the linen ephod there was worn also by Samuel. Now force yourself to look into this scene. Terror and bloodbath at Gibeah, butchery and annihilation in the village of these priests. It included also men and women uh, and children. Central temple or rational shrine was apparently situated in Nob under Saul, and this it's possible that Ahimelech was then the chief priest here. In any case, Nob was certainly a major, a major religious center, the city of priests in Saul's kingdom, where the Ark of God could have been kept for at least, at least for a while. Saul treated Nob like some enemy city that had been put under a ban. Do you remember when the Lord told Saul to annihilate the Amalekites because they were evil people and they were killing um, indiscriminately. Um, he told them to destroy them completely. So that kind of destruction is with enemies. What he did here with the priests was meant to be done to his enemies. Thus Saul carried out total destruction of the priest city while neglecting to put the Amalekites under a ban in chapter 15. When they reject God and his justice, human beings can become cruel, totally destroying innocent people, and at the same time become tolerant and toward evil, the evil, letting them live on whether in war or in peace. And Saul proves himself a scale model antichrist here. Why is that? Why do I say that? He vents his fury on the priests of Yahweh, Yahweh's designated servants and representatives of his people. He annihilates the whole village um, from, in Israel, though they were not one of God's enemies. This is open war against the servants of the Lord and therefore against the Lord himself and the refusal of the servants who are by no means sensitive men to lay hands on the Lord's anointed priests is intended as a deliberate contrast. True that Saul does not destroy all Israel, only 85 priests and their family. Saul does not wipe out all the cities of Israel, but only one town. But antichrists are not measured by statistics, are they? They annihilate people. The text is clear enough. Here is Saul, the destroyer of Israel. There is one fact, however, that gives God's people some consolation. Antichrists tend to be fragile. In one word, they're weak. At least in that case in 1 Samuel 22, we see this. True, Saul can have priests butchered by mere royal order, provided he orders in a right istuyal. But it is just his problem. Saul has nothing left but raw power. Saul is increasingly isolating himself, divesting himself of whatever true support that he could have. He has pushed away his own son in chapter 20, 
and exterminated Yahweh's priests and repulsed his closest servants. Saul has had all but in his process of losing everything. Now he can only say, Doeg is for me. This person who does not know God, he is my friend now, my closest friend. When only Doeg is for me, I am in trouble. We should think that way. Make no mistake, the picture of Saul is tragic and sad. Nevertheless, to see the weakness of his power is consoling God's people, consoling to God's people. It provides an encouraging supplement to the apostles' statements. Even now, many antichrists have come. Why is that? Despite the Lord's decree, Saul has become obsessed with power and prestige. He is prepared to do whatever is necessary to retain his position as Israel's king, and even if it means murdering those whom he perceives as enemies. Time and again, those around Saul remind him of David's innocence and loyalty to him, but he has decided that David is an enemy and misinterprets any defense of David as a proof that one is protesting as an ally of his perceived enemy and a traitor to the crown. In his warped thinking, thus, he justifies their execution. Why is it important for us to reflect on this evil suspicions? Because they're destructive. Um, and it might not be that people might be killed through it, but relationships might be broken. Lives might be destroyed. And that leads us to the last point here. Um, evil suspicions are under God's sovereignty. Um, that is on verse 20 to 23. We read here that one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped after David. Saul might have nothing left but raw power, but a look around Nob convinces us that raw power is pretty powerful, but not completely so. There was one that escaped he flees to David and spills the tragic news, finds sanctuary with David. David treats Yahweh priests much differently than Saul does, doesn't he? The whole section seems designated to this, depict this contrast. But before we get to the, the verses here, I would like to take a step back and reflect, you know, a little bit on, on all that's happening here. There's more to this story that than just Saul killing people. Yes, it is gruesome and brutal and unjust, and yet one cannot read the eggs of slaughter without recalling the prophecy of chapter 2, verse 30 through 36. How about we turn there? Chapter 2. Remember that Ahimelech is a descendant of Eli, the priest. Remember Eli, the bad priest and his sons that were corrupt? God prophesied against that family. Therefore, verse 30, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me I will be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be no, there will be not, um, there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling and in spite of all good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of their life. And this will be a sign to you and will come concerning your two sons. And we know that Hophni and Phinehas got killed in battle. But we do see the promise that the Lord would preserve one of them. One of them that would be, um, it would escape all this butchery. The eggs butchery fulfills the word of God against the house of Eli. That word had been spoken perhaps 40, maybe 50 years before all of this. Now, I want to make it clear. God is not the author of this evil. Place the blame where it belongs on the renegade Edomite and the Antichrist who commands him. They dare to destroy the priests of Yahweh. It is a horrid wickedness which Saul and Doeg are fully responsible. It is clear fulfillment of the word of Yahweh had spoken. Now put it together and one truth becomes clear. Even in opposing God's kingdom, God's enemies only bring to pass God's word. That is a comfort for us, that even evil suspicions and their destructive consequences, they're under God's sovereignty. I would only highlight the one principle. One can vigorously attack the enemy and all the time simply be executing the enemy's will. So with Saul, with Doeg, even in their wicked slaughter of Yahweh's priests, they nevertheless fulfilled his word. God's enemies proved the truthfulness of his word. And in their hostility against him, they carry out his will. This truth is clear, even if it is mysterious. It is plain, though it's not simple. Who is responsible? Is it God or was that Saul? Well, it's not one or the other. And I think the New Testament writers saw that. Man's responsibility and God's sovereignty do not exclude each other. They work. They cooperate. So um, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. I think that illustrates for us well how the apostles, they saw that. The question that Peter is asking here is, who killed the Lord? Was it the Roman soldiers, the Jewish people that delivered him? It says that in verse 23, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God had already established that. That was his will, that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. But yet, they, the Jewish people, nailed him to a cross by the hand of godless man and put him to death. 
both were acting at the same time there. Chapter 5, or chapter 4, we see a similar truth there being stated by Peter again. We're looking at verse... Um, did I get the wrong one? Mm. Verse 26, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you, to turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Um, I might have uh, lost the reference here, but you got the point from chapter, 20, uh, chapter 2. Um, the Lord is both operating in the situation and uh, working. Oh, actually, chapter, chapter 4, verse uh, 26. I was in chapter 3. That's why I was a little lost here. I had it right. Verse 26. Peter is praying. He says, The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So as we think about all the suffering and all the things that we endure, we have to be reminded that God is in control of those things. He's not just in heaven with his arms crossed looking at us. Well, that's happened. I couldn't do anything about it. It is what puts his steel into the Christian's endurance. If we know that as man oppose God and his people, they will only fulfill his word. What happened to the church when they started being persecuted? God used that to spread them and send more missionaries. It doesn't take away the sorrow and the grief or suffering, but it gives a secret certainty of victory. 1 Samuel 22 is as clear text in any of this. There is no way Yahweh's enemy can gain the edge. He has them completely outclassed. If they knew that what they were doing, they would kick themselves if the Lord's word of judgment is so sure, certainly his word of consolation is just as solid. He can be trusted. Moving on here, verse 20. We're almost there. However, in God's providence, there is one person that escapes, Abiathar. We just read that. Perhaps he had left the left knob that day to maintain the rituals of the sanctuary and was informed of the massacre with sufficient time to escape and take the priestly vestments with him. He escaped and fled after David. It's an expression here equivalent that David fled, uh, fled to David and with viewing the following, uh, with a purpose of following after him. Now the narrative depicts Saul as the destroyer of the priesthood while David is his protector. Where Saul is... In this way, alienating the priest, David gains possession of one, a real priest, one of the house of Eli. We learn from chapter 23, verse 6, that Abiathar brought the ephod with him. Now he's consulting God for David. It's the true priesthood and the priestly council and the divine oracle 
have officially moved from Saul to David. These priests, this man, will be associated with David until really the end of his kingdom. In verse 21, we read that Abiathar informs David of Saul's murder of priests. Saul had slain them. And then 22, we see David reflecting its whole thing as he says, you know, I knew that this was going to happen. I knew that in that day that um, Doeg was there. I knew on that day that Doeg, the Edomite, was there. He would surely tell Saul. In other words, I realized that these was going to happen. The independent pronoun is used here uh, for the emphasis and contrast. I am the one, now he says, um, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Now, is David, was David's self-incrimination really deserved? Did he really cause their death? It depends how soon he knew that Doeg was present. But the narrative is unclear in this regard. His confession does suggest the possibility that he anticipated Doeg's action and could have somehow shielded Ahimelech. If so, this suggests that David, when under stress, is willing to forfeit the well-being and even the lives of others to save his own skin. Isn't that interesting? He lied to a priest, and here's the consequence. Even if this is not the case and Ahimelech is simply the victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, the incident has a foreshadowing function. An innocent man, loyal to David, dies as a result of a scheme designed to save David's skin. In this case, the story sets us up for a startling contrast. If David's self-incrimination is unjustified or misplaced guilt... It nevertheless shows the sensitive spirit and genuine concern that David has for others. David asks Abiathar to stay with him. He says the reference to Abiathar being with David prepares the reader for subsequent events in which the priest plays an important role in consulting the will of God for David. So... We must not downplay Abiathar's cape. Here's another point for God's sovereignty over all these things. We would be wrong to think this is insignificant. Abiathar's cape and preservation are more important than we may surmise. Abiathar's cape and safety are important for they are a sign of how God always preserves his people and safety are important for they are a sign of how God, um, sorry, Yahweh always preserves his people in the midst of their destruction. Abiathar is another exhibit of the evidence for a pattern that the Lord seems to follow. The priests of Yahweh may be destroyed, but not completely destroyed. The people of God may often be put down, but never put out. Abiathar's cape does not mean that all God's servants are immune from the world's butchery, but that the world's butchery can never wipe out all of God's servant. I appreciate the way that Pastor Ralph Davis puts it. He says, The Lord does not promise that he will never, we will never die for the kingdom of God. 
but he promises that the kingdom of God will never die. If that is what we're seeking, anyways, right, in Matthew 6, 33, we seek the kingdom of God first, um, this will be comforting news. So, in conclusion, this episode shows how Saul's disobedience culminates in his actively opposing the will of God. As we reflect on the original audience of this book, I want to remind you that this book was written to the people of Israel while they were in Babylon. So priests wrote the book of First and Second Samuel during that time, and it's basically to remind them um, what can happen to people when they alienate themselves from God. Indeed, their ancestors have traveled down this path. The people of Judah that were in Babylon, they just saw what happened to the northern kingdom when they disobeyed the Lord, and yet they decided to go that route. Their rebellion prompted divine judgment, which culminated in exile. Saul's tragic descent and decline should motivate these people, their exiles there, and all who read his story to avoid the path in which he has chosen to walk. In the same way, it should prevent us from going on the same path of Saul. And back in Joseph Stalin, he prohibited this version of the Grapes of Wrath, I don't know if you saw that movie, uh, to be shown in the Soviet Union. While the movie, the intent of the filmmakers was to depict the downside of the American life. What problem could Stalin possibly have with showing the Soviet people a dreary picture of life in the U.S.? Huh. But the movie showed that in the United States, the poor had trucks and they could go whatever they wanted. That was, in a word, too political for him. We may think nothing of poor folks in, their in the 30s having a beat-up truck, but it was too significant for Stalin. This is how suspicions operate. They tend to be distrusting of anyone and everyone. They are what we call sometimes control freaks, trying to manipulate not only the circumstances, but also the response of others. Here's the bottom line. Suspicions cause you to keep your eye on the wrong person. Rather than focusing on pleasing and worshiping the one who sovereignly controls all things, who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who has promised to protect his children, suspicion focus on the harm you may experience at the hand of an autonomous entity who is going to somehow neutralize God's promises and penetrate his defenses. That's how suspicion operates. In one way or another, suspicious people distrust God himself, and that is the bottom line. They trust rather, or at least more, in their own personal perceived ability to protect themselves. In the end, they are actually suspicious of God himself. So my plea to you is do not lean in your own understanding. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are thankful for your word and for the warnings that we receive. We've been encouraged today, Lord, to be trusters of you and not doubters.
that we would look to the people around us, not with an eye of suspicion, but with an eye of trust, not in them, but in you, and how you even use all circumstances to work together for our good. Lord, we're thankful that you preserve your people as you preserved Biathar, the priest, and we know that you continue to preserve us even when we face opposition. Lord, I pray that we may place our trust in you alone. In your son's name, amen. You're dismissed.